0: So I had a couple of weeks, a couple of Sundays where I wasn't here, and uh, two Sundays ago I got to go uh, preach at a church, that one of the churches that we sponsor, Church Plant, that was awesome. Last week I got to go to a church in Kentucky where uh, they've experienced that flooding, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in just a second, or at the end of the service, but I'm happy to be back and I'm super glad that you're here today. And I had thought about, okay, when I come back from a sabbatical, we'll start a new series, but there are a, a couple of parables that just sort of I want to talk about. So we've done many of the parables of the last few weeks. In fact, I think this is maybe the 15th week of parables. But we're going to do two more. Uh, we're going to do uh, today and next week. Uh, we're going to talk about the last one that we're going to talk about. I think there are about 34, 36 parables. So we didn't do them all, uh, but we did about half of them. And and so today we're talking about um, a parable and the the point of the parable is you have to be prepared. So let me let me see if you've ever done this. Um, this is a very common dream, and lots of people have it, but have you ever had that dream where you show up, you're back at school, and you show up, and it's final exam day, and you haven't studied? Anybody ever have that dream? Uh, I've had that dream a few times, and you're just woefully unprepared, and... There's one thing you know when you're taking classes, and that is there's a final coming someday. It might not be today, and it might not be tomorrow, but sometime you're going to be uh, in class, and there's going to be a final. And it's not just school that you need to be ready for. My buddy, uh, Joel Horn, who lives in New Mexico, he's a pastor. He did a funeral, and you know how this goes. There's a funeral at, at the chapel or at the church, and then you get in a funeral processional if you're going to go to the graveside, and then you do a few words at the graveside, Well, in the processional, he told me that the hearse had to pull over and get gas. Uh, So uh, you can imagine it's it's kind of funny, but not funny. Um, That you had to get gas, and everybody pulled off to the side of the road. And uh, so, it's important to be prepared for things. And Jesus makes this point in this particular parable today. Now, there are things that we know are coming, and we do prepare for. we've had four children, and so when my wife um, has gotten pregnant, then we knew there's going to be a day, and you kind of can figure out, generally speaking, it's going to be you know this general time, and so you prepare for that. And you have a shower or showers, and you fix the nursery, and um, you sort of mentally prepare for I'm not going to get sleep and that kind of thing, and, and you, you sort of think about, hey, that's coming up. When you have kids, you know, hey, eventually they're going to go to college, and I'm going to need to prepare for that, and I'm going to have to prepare mentally for them not being here, and I'm going to have to prepare financially for them going someplace, and so you prepare for that. And then there are stories that we hear of people who didn't prepare for something that they knew was going to happen. Um, Like, occasionally you hear a story of someone, and they passed away, but they didn't have life insurance, and Death is inevitable unless Jesus comes first, and so it's probably a good plan to have something in place. But we all know, we've all heard stories, and it might be our story, where we just didn't plan, or, or our dad didn't plan, or our mom didn't plan, and we have to now pick up the pieces of that. And so Jesus tells this parable in response to a question that was weighing on the minds of his disciples, now, these are guys who think that Jesus is the Messiah in the sense that they thought the Messiah was going to take over the government, and so you have to remember every story has a context Jesus's parables have these big contexts, and we're going to talk about it in a second, but you have the Israelites and they live in you know they, they live in Israel, and their country is occupied by the Romans, and they're hoping. And they're praying and they're anticipating a Messiah who's going to come and he's going to kick the Romans out and take over and be like King David and have great um, military victories and he's going to be this military leader. And so they ask him the question and they ask it often, when are you going to establish your kingdom? They have a vested interest in this. Because if Jesus is the Messiah and they're Jesus' good friends, then when Jesus comes into power, they get to kind of ride his coattails also into power. And so they ask him, Hey, Jesus, when are you going to establish your kingdom? And that sort of sets up the story. So let's look at a couple of verses. Jesus says, About that day or hour, no one knows. We're going to come back to this verse in a second. It's super important. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven Nor the son. He's talking about himself. Nor the son. But only the father. He says it again. Therefore keep watch. Because you do not know what day your Lord will come. Two other times he tells this. He makes the same statement. You just don't know. And then in response to this. He tells this parable. It's the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Now. Weddings then and weddings now have some similarities, but they're also wildly different. We're going to kind of point those out in just a second, but the the job of the bridesmaid is to have a, a, a lamp. It really it means torch to have their torches ready. This is really important, and, and I'll tell you about it in just a second. But to have their torches ready for when the groom comes, they have one job. I love those memes about you have one job. I love those. I, I found a couple I really liked. Uh, This one, I think they got the words backward. This is a work-free drug place. Uh, (laughs) Pretty sure that's wrong. I don't see any problem with this, but somebody did. I don't know. I love this one because I think that looks good on that car. Um, Oh, don't worry, there's an emergency staircase. Uh, Maybe a little off, I don't know. And I like the long yellow things, uh, so, you know, words are hard, you know, to kind of come up with the right word. Alright, so Jesus has just been asked, when are you going to establish your kingdom? And so he tells this story. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps, and again, sort of think torch when you think, the, the word really should have been translated torch, so... Uh, the, it would be a stick, you know what a torch is, a stick with a uh, cloth on the end, and they would have oil on the cloth, and that way it would burn and not burn the cloth up immediately, that kind of thing. Uh, these, their torches, and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The five who were foo- foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps. But the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. And the word there for foolish is the word moros, which we get from the which we get the word moron. And it doesn't mean they're just dumb, they're just really unprepared. And so Jesus' whole point in this story is to say: there are things for which you must be prepared. There's stuff in life you've got to be prepared for. And so Let's talk about weddings because you have to understand what a Jewish, um, Middle Eastern, Jesus time wedding looked like. It's a little different than our weddings. There are some similarities and you'll see them, but there are kind of three things, three sort of phases of a Jewish wedding. First was the engagement, and this is vastly different then and now. In the Jewish culture, uh, the dads of the brides and grooms, they're the ones who negotiated a wedding the way God intended now, this is great. As the father of daughters, I love this system because uh, some snotty-nosed boy might want to marry my girl, but he's going to have to pay. Uh, that's the beauty of this system. So the, the, the boy would send his dad to negotiate with the, 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 br- the bride's uh, you know, uh, dad, and they would, they would have a conference, and they would figure out a bride price. See, this is beautiful. Because somebody need to be paying me for my girls. So that's what I say. And so, not today, not today. Today, the dad has to pay for the wedding. But, but back then, so unbiblical, I'm not bitter. Uh, so unbiblical. So these dads would negotiate. And they'd come up with the bride price. And they would, they would have this engagement. And then there would be this ceremony. Um, there would be vows exchanged. There would be promises made. And for all intents and purposes, the couple is married, but they don't consummate the marriage yet because there's this time between the ceremony, the betrothal, and the uh, the coming together that the boy has to prove himself. He, he's got to prove himself. Now, that could consist of he has to build a house for them to live in, or he has to add a, a wing onto his dad's house, and that's where, where they're going to be, or, or he has to plant a harvest, and uh, he has to harvest it, and he has to, prove, has to prove himself. Now, during the betrothal, it's really important to understand this, that if he dies, they are considered married, it would, she would now be a widow, this, this young woman. They married really young, by the way. If he decided or she decided they didn't want to be married, then there would be a divorce. I mean, this was binding. But there was there was an intermediary period between now, between betrothal, and when the couple celebrated their vows. Now, that's why I, I said we're going to come back to this first. That's why it says, When Jesus said uh, about the day or the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You can imagine you've exchanged vows with this woman. Men, you're going to get this. You've exchanged vows with this woman and you are eager to be with her. You tracking? Y'all know what eager means? All right, I thought so. You are eager to be with her. So, you got to prove yourself. Or are you going to take care? I'd put up a shack. You know, I'm, I'm like throwing anything together. It's a house. Uh, and so the dad, his dad, would oversee whatever this boy's task was to make sure he did it properly. And he might, he'd throw up a, a shack and say, Dad, it's ready. He's like, no, no, no. you got to do it right. you got to do it right. And so, and so... Only the father could say when it was time for him to go get his bride. Only the father can say. So you recall, in John 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. That's that's groom language. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when my father says it's time, I'll come back and take you to be with me. And so... Jesus really doesn't know. I love the notion that he's gone to prepare a place for us. Because his father is, and like like Jesus wouldn't do it right, but he's saying, hey, we're going to do it right. We're going to do it right. Now, after the betrothal was the celebration. And this is where we find this story. This is how it went down in those days. Now, understand something. Um, In... In Jewish times, in those times, uh, the star of the wedding was the groom. Not like today. What do we do today? (laughs) Good grief. The star of the show is who in a wedding today? The bride. Uh, The groom is a prop. Uh, He's like like flowers. You know, he's got to be there, but we really don't care. All right, so... So what happens? The bride comes in the back door. I've done a lot of weddings. I, I stand there. i got the groom beside me. And the bride comes in and the door is open. And what happens? We say, everyone rise. And we all, we're, we're all just smitten. You know, it's like, oh, she's so beautiful. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a moment, right? Well, not, not in Jewish weddings. The star of the show is the groom. All right, so here's the setup for this story. The groom has been preparing a place for his bride, and the dad said, It's almost ready. I'm going to tell them to be ready. You're coming relatively soon. Almost ready. I'm going to tell them that you're coming soon. And that's where we find the story. Now, these weddings could last seven days. I mean, it's a long thing. And this is what would happen. The groom would be with his groomsmen, and when the dad said go, can you imagine he's like, oh, I've got to watch the football game. No. He's eager, remember what that means, he is eager to go get his bride. He is super eager. She's over there, she's at her dad's house, she's with her bridesmaids, they're doing bridesmaidsy thing, you know, I don't know what they do. And, and they're, they married very young. This is probably her sisters, her cousins, her you know, young friends. And so, and so, this always happened in the evening. The groom would take his boys and they would go through the town and they would blow the shofar horn and they would shout. And it's like, it's time for the wedding. It's party time. And everybody in the village wanted to know this. And they would go, and they would go to the bride's house, her dad's house, and they would uh, all go in this little troop, you know. And it was the bridesmaids' responsibility to have torches. You're getting the picture right. They're going through the streets. The boys are blowing the horns. They're shouting. They're singing. The bridesmaids are identified because they have a torch like today, bridesmaids, you know, they, they have those little bouquets, not as big as the brides, but they have little bouquets and uh, dresses with poofy sleeves, you know. And you know who they are, right? Well, you know who a bridesmaid was in this scenario because they had a torch, and they're carrying it through the street, and they're on their way to the celebration. They're, they're ready to have a party. Now, from this text. We see that they're, it's really interesting. A lot of this stuff is cultural. Uh, He talks about ten bridesmaids. Ten was important to uh, Jewish numerology. It's kind of interesting. You had to have ten men to have a synagogue in a town. There are certain things. You had to have ten uh, men to offer a, a blessing at a wedding. And in this case, you had to have ten bridesmaids. Sort of the perfect number. Now, there are lessons to be learned from this parable. Let's look at a couple of them real quickly. First, the groom doesn't come when they expect him to. Look at what it says: when the bridegroom was delayed, they all kept, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now, primarily, the bridesmaids' only job is to be ready for when the bridegroom comes. It's all they have to do. They just have to be ready. You know, today bridesmaids have. Other responsibilities. Well, back then, not so much. They just had to be ready for when the bridegroom came. So they're kind of hanging out. But these followers of Jesus, this is a not so subtle attempt to say, look, you guys think I'm going to establish my kingdom immediately, and it's not going to be that way. So Jesus tells these stories, so just to get it in their minds hey, it's not going to be immediate, there's going to be a kingdom. It's not going to be like you think, and it's not going to be when you think. It's going to be awesome, but it's not what you think it's going to be. And so he tells this story so they understand that. And there's a principle here. While we wait, we work. There's stuff to be done. And so we've all heard of these cults and these places, and they think Jesus is coming immediately, and they, figure out, they try to figure out a date. By the way, the Bible says you cannot figure out the date. You just can't do it. But we've heard of these people, and they go on top of a hill, and they all have you know, um, white robes on, and they sing, they're singing the king is coming or something, and, and, and it never pans out for them. This has been happening for years and years and years and years and years. Lots of different people, lots of dispensations of people trying to figure out when Jesus is coming. And what we're working on while he waits, and while we wait, is our character. Cause I'm not going to take my clothes into eternity and I'm not going to take my possessions into eternity, but I am going to take my character into eternity. And so while I wait, I work while you wait, you work. We work on our character. Now let's go on with the story at midnight. They were roused by a shout. Look, the bridegroom is coming, come out and meet him. And Oh, this is the launch sequence, right? <laughs> it is about to happen. And you can imagine the joy on the young people involved here. This groom with his ten groomsmen, this bride with her ten bridesmaids. There is anticipation that now the party has started. We heard he was coming soon, longer than we thought, but now the party has started. And they are excited. They're super excited about this. Now, all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their torches, their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough. We don't have enough. Go to the shop, buy some for yourself. And this comes across a little bit selfish. Like, well, why don't you just share? Well, they explain why they didn't share. They don't, we don't have enough. There can either be five of us in the parade or none of us in the parade. Because we don't have enough. We have enough for our lamps, our torches. We don't have enough for yours. And there's a principle it's super important to understand. There are some things in life you can't borrow. You can't borrow somebody else's faith. Just because your mama was a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because your daddy was a preacher or your uncle was a preacher, I love those stairs. I'll talk to people sometimes and, um, and I'll, I'll talk to them a little bit and, and they'll say, well, my uncle was a preacher. Like, you know, It's like, well, okay, good, that's, that's great. Good for your uncle. Um, that didn't mean anything for you. Yeah, we 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 can't take somebody else's faith, and really we can't take somebody else's character. Can you Im- imagine standing in line to have an interview with Jesus? You know, and and, uh, and you're you're talking to the guy behind you, and you say, "Hey, in my twenties I was really bad. Uh, can I borrow your twenties? Because I, I was a I was a hellion back then. You know, I I need I need to borrow some of your stuff. Can't borrow. There's some things you just can't borrow." Which brings me to the next really important point. I'm responsible to God for my life. I'm responsible for my life. I'm not responsible for anybody else's life. But I do have to give an accounting of my life. We live in a world where everything is somebody else's fault. If something happens to me, I'm going to blame somebody else for it. But someday... The buck will stop with you, and you have to give an accounting of what you've done with your life. Look what happens. While they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came, and then those who were ready went in with him to be uh, to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned by the way, do you remember when they went to buy oil, what time of day it was? Remember? It was midnight. They didn't have like 24-hour day 7-Elevens back then. They had to wait till the morning. So this was a, there was a long gap here. And when they uh, returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. And this is a really sad part of the story because they didn't get in to the party. This isn't a story about, hey, let's figure out when Jesus is coming. This is a story about, hey, let's be ready when He does come. Let's keep watch because that was the point Jesus was trying to make. You just don't know. Pursue a transformed heart. That's what you do know. God is delayed. Uh, He's delaying His Son coming back. There's a reason. Jesus one time said He's not slow in keeping His promises, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to salvation. And so he's patient. God is very patient with us. He wants us to have a transformed heart. And what are you going to say? Have you ever had a kid, like one of your kids and something happens, uh, they leave their towel on the bathroom floor and you say, why did you leave your towel on the bathroom floor? What's their, what is their answer every time? Oh. Oh. I mean, is that what you're going to say with Jesus? When Jesus says, hey, um, why didn't you devote yourself to knowing me better? I don't know. Why, didn't you, why weren't you more generous? I don't know. Why, why didn't you take more risks for me? I don't know. Why, why, why are you so lax in parenting? Huh? I don't know. Why did you spend your one and only life working so hard for stuff you can't take with you and you come home in the afternoon and you fall on the couch and watch television? Why did you live that life? Oh, I don't know is not a great answer to any of those questions. It's kind of a bad answer actually. And this point was so important to Jesus. That he tells four stories in a row to make the point. In Luke 15, we talk about this a lot. He gives three parables. They're all, they all they're different, but they all have the same point. He tells the parable of the woman who loses her coin out of her dowry. Uh, he tells a story about uh, 99 sheep, uh, 100 sheep, and the guy loses one, and he goes out to seek, seek it. And he tells a story of the prodigal son. We all know that story. And all three stories are the same story. Point. He's making the same point that our Father loves us and He seeks us. It's a great point. Now, scholars understand if Jesus said something three times, He's emphasizing it. It's just like when your mother used all your names, Joseph Lawrence Vest. When when Mama said that, mm, that ain't good. Nothing about that's good. By the way, my mother will turn eighty nine on Tuesday. Um, lives by herself. She's great. Mona, I love you. Happy birthday. Uh, She'll watch this next Sunday. So it's on a little delay. And um, I want to shout out to Mama. Okay. (laughs) Jesus tells this this same story basically four times. If he says it four times, if three times means he really wants to emphasize it, what do you think four times means? Hey, he really, really wants us to be prepared. He really wants us... To be prepared. And here's what's interesting about this. We usually don't like intend to be unprepared. We just drift. Nowhere in this story does it say the brides make. What's the word that was used for them? Do you remember? Foolish. It doesn't say they were rebellious or evil or wicked. The word they use is foolish. They just drifted. And this is what we do. None of us, most of us, I would say, maybe the vast majority of us, we're not, if you're here, you're probably not choosing to just disregard what God has to say for your life. But sometimes we just drift. So, the few minutes we have left, let's talk about some areas where sometimes we drift. It's a good time to kind of think through, okay, have I, have I ever drifted in this area? It's great. Let's do that. Let's, let's sort of have a, a self-assessment in a couple of areas. Where, what kind of things do I drift? And I'll give you some biblical examples. One is parenting. Sometimes I just drift. There was a guy named Eli in the Scriptures in the Old Testament, and he was a priest, and he worked at the church, and he offered the sacrifices, and he was, for all intents and purposes, a pretty godly man. But he had a couple of sons. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. They were not good people. In fact, in this verse it says, Eli knew his sons were evil, and they're not joking when they say evil. Hophni and Phinehas would steal uh, the offerings. (laughs) That's not good. Man, you, steal, you, you can steal from a lot of people, I guess, but then you steal from God. It's really, really bad. And, and they would just steal the offerings. They used their position of power and authority in the church to seduce women. Yeah, so it wasn't like they took one cracker out of communion. These were evil guys, okay? And Eli, it says, knew. And, act, and they acted without honor, and he did not stop them. Now, we don't really know why he didn't stop them. Maybe their descent into being evil was so gradual. Maybe he prayed and hoped they would. Hope, by the way, is usually not a good strategy. But he hoped they would turn their lives around. Perhaps he was so preoccupied with ministry he just didn't notice. Except it says he knew. And he did nothing. Maybe he was in denial. I, I know what I saw and I know what I'm hearing, but that can't be true. We, we do that sometimes. Man, we love our kids. I, I get that. Imagine the regret he faced the day he found out his two sons had died in battle. And he had never taken the time to at least have a conversation with them. Now look. I have three adult daughters who are out of the house. I I did the best I could. Miriam and I did the best we could as parents until they moved out of the house. And now they have lives. And I can speak into that, but I don't have authority in their lives. But Eli had authority because these boys worked with him at the church. Perhaps he, he was afraid that they would reject him as a father some of us have kids and we need to say something. And we put it off and we deny and we just sort of think, well, maybe it'll get better. And the longer we wait, the harder it becomes. Some of us have kids that we need to speak words of affirmation to and we didn't hear it from our dads, so it's hard for us to say it. You know, we we had those dads who didn't say a lot, didn't express their emotions a lot. And so there we are and we don't know exactly know how to do it. For some of us, we've been spending so much time trying to get ahead that we forget to spend time with our kids. And at the end of your life, I don't think you're going to want to have regret in the area of parenting. Some of us have Drifted in finances. Don't you hate those stories about, you know, this is a Walmart trucker and he bought stock at two dollars and now it's worth seven billion dollars. I, I hate those stories because I never get, you know, never do that. Never, I've never bought Walmart stock at the right at pl- pl- uh, price. And, and some of us have regrets financially. There's a story in the book of Acts about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira and they were watching everybody. The church was very young and there were folks selling property and giving the money to the church so that they could use it to help others. And Ananias and Sapphira saw what sort of accolades those people were getting and so they sold some property but they they only gave a portion of it. It was theirs to do with what they wished. They didn't have to give any of it. But they gave a portion but they said it was all... And it grieved the Holy Spirit. They lost their lives. And then there's a story of Jesus. He tells about, in fact, it's not a story. He, he goes to the temple and he sees this little widow and she gives the two smallest coins that are available. It's all she had. And he acknowledges her and lifts her up. And I think if there's an investment seminar in heaven... It's not going to be led by Steve Jobs. It's going to be led by the little woman who gave two small coins. For some of us, it we've drifted in the area of living properly. You know, bad habits hardly ever just go away. Have you ever noticed that about bad habits? Um, If you chew your nails, you kind of have to make intentions to not chew your nails. Maybe when you're driving, uh, you call other people bad names. That typically doesn't just go away. You like to wave at them, but not with all your fingers, you know, that kind of thing. And so uh, there's that kind of stuff that happens. And if you're not intentional, you just drift into bad behavior. We kind of all do that. The biblical example I have is a guy named Cain. The Lord said to him one time, why are you angry? You see, Cain gave an offering. He's trying to do sort of something, but his brother gives a better offering, and sibling rivalry has been around forever, evidently. And so he gives a better offering, and Cain doesn't like it. And, and God says, why are you angry and your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, and you must rule over it. And there we are. We See, Cain wanted to blame somebody else. Adam wanted to blame somebody else. Eve wanted to blame somebody else. And maybe your life isn't where you want it to be. And so I'm going to give you you an idea. You don't have to listen to it, but I'm I'm going to tell you. Why don't you... We probably all have an idea of what the perfect day would look like in our lives. Perfect day. So maybe you take some time and you write down, this is what the perfect day would look like for me. I, I would get up at 6. You know, I'm just an example. I, I'd get up at 6, I would drink a cup of coffee, I'd read my Bible, I would pray, I would exercise, I'd go to work or I'd go to school, I'd come home, I'd do the dishes or whatever. You write out, this is, because every day is an opportunity to have a perfect day. Every new day is an opportunity to have a perfect day. Now maybe you make a mistake or two on the... On the you could have an almost perfect day. You know, an almost perfect day is better than just an average day. Just an everyday. An almost perfect day is better than what most of us do every day. And so... You pray and say, God, what do you want me to do with this day? What would it look like if I had a perfect day? And you write it out. And you look at it before you go to bed. Alright, for me to have a perfect day, I'm going to have to get up. So I'm going to have to set my alarm. So I'm going to have to get ready for tomorrow. Because that's the whole story is about being prepared. And you could prepare your every day. Another area that we sometimes drift is risk-taking. Can you imagine? <laughs> your <laughs> You're one of the Israelites. You are enslaved in Egypt. And God miraculously delivers you. You've seen God perform ten plagues, including the Passover. And the firstborn were killed of everyone except those like you who took a blood of a lamb and you painted your doorpost and the angel of death passed over your family but not others. And Pharaoh kicks you out and then you get to the Red Sea and God parts the Red Sea. You've seen this. And then God leads you by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And God has done all these things. Can you imagine getting to the cusp of the promised land? You send in spies and they say, well, we can't attack those people. I mean, they're stronger than we are. And don't you wish somebody would have said, well, weren't the Egyptians stronger than us? And God just whacked them. That's why, that's why I would have said it. Uh, he just he annihilated them. Why are we afraid? And there were two or three guys that said, we can do it. And the rest of them were like, no, dude, this is crazy. And you missed the blessing because you weren't willing to take a risk. Imagine their regret. Imagine, the promised land is there. And all you got to do is go. One more. Sometimes we drift in relationships. This is really easy to do, by the way. You have somebody in your life and, you know, you want to develop the relationship. You just don't. And other things get in the way, and it could be football games, or it could be beauty pageants, or it could be lots of things. And, and life happens, a lot of things happen, and you just get so obsessed with other stuff that you don't develop relationships. There was a Scottish writer in the 19th century named Thomas Carlyle. He, boasts, he wrote lots and lots, and he, wrote, he was a historian, And he was mostly devoted to his work, but he married his secretary. Her name was Jane Welsh. She got ill and then became bedridden. And he still sort of focused on his work. And then listen to what happened. When Jane died, they carried her to the cemetery for the service in pouring rain. Following the funeral, Carlisle went back to his home and he went up the stairs to Jane's room. And he sat down in the chair next to her bed. And he sat there thinking about how little time he'd spent with her and wishing so much he had a chance to do it differently. And noticing her diary on the table beside the bed, he picked it up and he began to read it. Suddenly he was shocked. There on one page she had written a single line. Yesterday he spent an hour with me and it was like heaven. I love him so. And something dawned on him that he had not noticed before. He had been too busy to notice that he meant so much to her. He thought about all the times he'd gone to his work without thinking about or even noticing her. He turned the page in her diary and there he noticed some words that broke his heart. She wrote, I listened all day to hear his footsteps in the hall. And now it is late. And I guess he's not coming today. And Carlyle read a little more. And then he threw the book to the ground. And he ran out of the house. His friends found him at the grave. Face in the mud. Eyes red with tears. And he kept saying over and over. If only I'd known. If only I'd known. The truth of the matter is, God wants us to live without regret. Frank Sinatra used to sing a song called My Way. Sort of the anthem of a person who plans for this life and not the next. Jesus' word to us today is to be ready. Just to be ready. Thank you, Father, for this word, this message, this time together. I pray that you would bless us as we walk out of this room and help us to be aware, alert, and attentive to your voice. In Jesus' name, amen.